This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week, I'll give you a sneak preview of the October issue of the Jewish Observer. First, from the Dayton section, anti-Semitism series continues. The Jewish Community Relations Council series dismantling anti-Semitism continues via Zoom at 10 a.m. Sunday, October 3rd with the program Words Matter. JCRC Senior Director Marcy L. Paul and Jewish Family Services Senior Director Tara L. Finer will facilitate a discussion about how the use of language impacts people's daily lives. The goal of the series is to educate the community about what anti-Semitism is, how it impacts people, and what individuals in the community can do to become upstanders and work toward dismantling hatred and discrimination. RSVP for the pre-program at jewishdayton.org forward slash events. Understanding Israel series. Karen E. Freeman, Dean and Chief Academic Officer of the Chicago-based Spertus Institute for Jewish Learning and Leadership, will serve as Scholar-in-Residence for the Jewish Community Relations Council's new series, Israel 101, Understanding Israel in the Diaspora. Freeman is also Associate Professor of Israel Studies for Spertus and worked at the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University. She'll lead three 90-minute sessions via Zoom, Sunday, October 24th at 10 a.m., Wednesday, November 3rd at 7 p.m., and Thursday, November 18th at 7 p.m. Freeman will also lead a series at the beginning of 2022, A Future of Coexistence. The cost of the fall series is $36. Register at jewishdayton.org forward slash events. How to, be, how to Build Resilience Wisdom Rabbi Amy Eilberg, an instructor of Musar, a Jewish system of spiritual development, will lead Jewish Family Services' Zoom program, Building Resilience and Wisdom in Challenging Times, at 6.30 p.m. Monday, October 11th. Based in San Francisco, Eilberg is the first woman to be ordained as a conservative rabbi by Jewish Theological Seminary. She recently served as coordinator of Jewish engagement for Faith in Action Bay Area, a multi-faith, multi-racial social justice organization. Eilberg is the author of the 2014 book, From Enemy to Friend, Jewish Wisdom and the Pursuit of Peace. RSVP for the free program at jewishdayton.org forward slash events. Ohio Society of Professional Journalists Awards has announced that Dayton Jewish Observer editor and publisher, Marshall Weiss, has received the 2021 First Place Award for Best Feature Reporting in its small newspaper category, Circulation Below 60,000. The awards are presented by the Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus SPJ chapters. Judges' comments wrote of Weiss's feature stories that they provide depth, education, and emotion, and that his stories are interesting and relevant. Weiss has been editor of The Observer since he established it as a publication of the Jewish Federation of Greater Dayton 25 years ago. This is The Observer's 11th first place Ohio SPJ award and the sixth for Weiss. 
and next from the observer, AI technology keeps real-time conversations with survivors alive. Cincinnati's Wolf Holocaust and Humanity Center, one of few museums in the world to present dimensions and testimony exhibit. In a dimly lit gallery designed for about 10 people, the focus is on a virtual life-size moving and talking image of Holocaust survivor Fritzi Fritschall displayed on a door-sized video screen. Against a black background, Fritzi appears to patiently await questions as she must have in front of so many school groups when she was alive. On a wall next to her is a panel with her biography. Born in Czechoslovakia in 1929, Fritzi was a slave laborer for nearly a year in Auschwitz II Birkenau. She escaped the Nazis during a death march and eventually settled in Chicago, where she would serve as president of the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center in Skokie. On both walls next to her are questions visitors might consider asking to start up the conversation. A few feet in front of Fritzi is a microphone to ask questions. Fritzi represents the newest technological effort to keep Holocaust survivors' testimonies alive for the generations that won't ever meet survivors in person. And the Nancy and David Wolf Holocaust and Humanity Center's Museum at Union Terminal in Cincinnati is one of only 10 museums in the world to exhibit these virtual conversations, dimensions, and testimony, an initiative of the USC Shoah Foundation. The world-class museum, which opened at Union Terminal in August 2019, is at the site of the train station where so many of Cincinnati's Holocaust survivors arrived uh, to, arrive to rebuild their new lives. Sarah L. Weiss, the Holocaust and Humanity Center CEO since 2007, knew she wanted to incorporate dimensions and testimony into the museum's new space. We decided, though, not to do it as part of the opening because everything was so new, she said. The plan was to open the Dimensions and Testimony Gallery in the summer of 2020. Because of the COVID pandemic, she postponed the opening until February 2021. For that virtual opening, the real Fritzi offered greetings from her home in Chicago. She died in June 2021 at the age of 91. We are fortunate that we still have survivors that go into the schools and speak virtually at this moment due to COVID, but we know there will be a day when we won't have that, Weiss said. Dimensions and testimony is a way to continue that personal interaction with the survivors, albeit through artificial intelligence. The USC Shoah Foundation, which has recorded more than 55,000 video testimonies, has completed about 20 of these artificial intelligence recordings of survivors for its Dimensions and Testimony project. Weiss said each of the 20 was recorded in California over one-week periods using dozens of cameras. Each survivor answered more than 1,000 questions about their Holocaust experiences and lives. She estimated the cost to produce each Dimensions and Testimony Survivor presentation at approximately $20,000. Of the 20, Weiss and her team have selected five for the Cincinnati exhibit in rotation. Fritzi recorded hers in 2015. It's the only one Weiss has shown to the public so far. 
Our plan is to, every so many months, change the survivor story featured in this gallery, Weiss said. Gritzy will be up for several more months. In January, the museum will pre present survivor Ava Schloss, Anne Frank's stepsister. Her mother married Otto Frank after the war, and she and Anne grew up together. She is hoping to come in for that opening when we introduce her testimony. Weiss said two obstacles stand in the way of localizing the exhibit with survivors from the Cincinnati area, the expense, and that the technology requires participants to travel to California to be recorded, a challenge for the frail elderly. There is a survivor in Florida right now who has been interviewed by the Shoah Foundation through this process, and he and his wife actually lived for, the most, for most of their life after the war in Cincinnati, she added. We may eventually integrate his testimony. Over the 20 minutes I took to ask Fritzy questions, she appeared to take them in, consider them, and responded, much like being in the presence of a person. I asked her questions. I have heard students ask Holocaust survivors and questions I've put to survivors in interviews over the years. How did you come to America? Do you hold all Germans responsible for the Holocaust? Do you feel guilt because you survived the Holocaust? What were your favorite foods growing up? How did you survive the death march from Auschwitz? How did you get out of Europe? Do you think there could ever be another Holocaust? These she answered patiently and in detail. One question she couldn't quite answer. I asked if she was raised in a traditional Jewish household. Her reply didn't correspond to the question. I tried another way. Were you raised in an Orthodox household? This time a different response, still not related to the question. Then I asked Fritzi, do you believe in God? Her reply was, I was raised in an Orthodox home, Jewish Orthodox home. I remember my grandfather laying tefillin every morning while I visited him, and the Jewish tradition is the belief in God. And I went into concentration camp like everyone else that was raised in a Jewish home. Did I know much about God at that point? No, I was a child. I don't know that much about the Torah. I didn't have a Jewish education, but the subject of God has come up a lot with students. I believe that if there was a God at Auschwitz, God did not speak up. God sat on a fence looking at his people and wasn't there to help his people, and so I have my issues with that question. When I asked Fritzi why she agreed to be recorded for this project, she said, Every time I stand up and I tell my story, it opens the wound. It brings back the past, and I see it. Why do I do it? I ask myself often. Why do I do this to myself? Why do I do it? I feel that I have an obligation as a survivor to tell the world what happened. I have an obligation to teach. I have an obligation to remember that it's important to me to leave my story behind so that the next generation can learn from me what I have gone through. And maybe it might touch one child. I need for the world to know, and this is why I do it. And next from the Observer, the Mazel Tov column. Martin Gottlieb's new book, Lincoln's Northern Nemesis, The War, Opposition, and Exile of Ohio's Clement Vallandigham, has just been published by McFarland and Company. It's the story of Dayton's representative to the U.S. Congress when the Civil War broke out. A 
retired longtime daily news editorial writer and current advisor to this publication, Martin describes Vladimir as the most prominent opponent of the war. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln threw him out of the country because of his views, Martin says. That made Vladimir a martyr for the Democrats, who proceeded to nominate him for governor in that year's election at the insistence of thousands of members of the base who flooded Columbus for the party convention and couldn't be safely denied. So in the resulting extraordinary campaign, one candidate could not enter the country. The election generated hyper-bitter polarization, violence, unprecedented enthusiasm, huge innumerable rallies, and higher turnout, over 80%, than presidential elections of the day, which was as stunning then as it would be now. Martin is also author of the 2006 book, Campaigns Don't Count, How the Media Get American Politics All Wrong. Matthew Klickstein unleashes his comedic offbeat book, his offbeat look at coming of age with his newly released middle grade audiobook, So Good to Be Bad, from Blackstone Publishing. Read by Carrie Height. Its main character is ten and a half year old Moishi Mushi Luftmensch. I snuck in a little Yiddish here or there throughout as well, along with a lot of old school vaudevillian Jewish borscht belt style comedy, one liners, and tone, Matt says. It was written very much in the classic Jewish comedy idiom. Trombonist Rich Bagel, founder and leader of the Miami Valley Klezmer Band, will sit in with the Anatevka Klezmer Band of Indianapolis for its performances in Cincinnati on Sunday, September 26th, to mark the rededication of Chestnut Street Cemetery in conjunction with the bicentennial celebration of Cincinnati's Jewish community. After the rededication, the Klezmorum will play while marching over to the Jewish community's Ish Festival in Washington Park. The Ish Festival celebrates Jewish and Israeli arts and culture. Rich will also join the Anatevka Band for the Ish Festival main stage on the Ish Festival main stage at about 2.25-ish p.m. The Miami Valley and Anatevka Klezmer Bands played together September 2nd in Cincinnati for the press conference to promote the September 26th events. Highlighting the Ish Festival is Matasyahu at 6 p.m. Saturday, September 25th. Local actor Saul Kaplan takes on the role of Herr Schultz, the Jewish fruit shop owner in Dare to Defy's production of Kander and Ebb's musical about Weimar Germany, Cabaret, October 13th to 16th at the PNC Arts Center. The Dayton Art Institute has put together a virtual exhibit of selected entries from the 2021 Max May and Lydia May Memorial Holocaust Art and Writing Contest. Each year, the contest offers students in grades 5 through 12 across the Miami Valley the opportunity to express what they've learned about the Holocaust. To view the online exhibit, go to DaytonArtInstitute.org forward exhibits. Do you know Jewish singles ages 30 to 49 here in the Midwest? The Dayton Jewish Observer is partnering with tcjewfolk.com of Minnesota to co-host Midwest Jewish Speed Date, Wednesday, October 6th at 9 p.m. Nudge those singles to look at the Midwest Jewish Speed Date Facebook page or go to 
tinyurl.com forward slash Midwest Jewish Speed Date. Event registration is only $5. The event code to sign up is YIDWEST, YID West. It's a great opportunity to virtually meet potential dates who actually live within driving distance. Genevieve Parker, TC Jew Folks Community Engagement Manager, says 100 people showed up for the first Midwest Jewish Speed Date back in June. They went on 285 speed dates, and 76 pairs decided to keep talking after the event. Send your announcements to jewishobserver at jfgd.net. And next in the religion section of the Jewish Observer, The Bitter and the Sweet by Rabbi Habiva Horbitz. Temple Beth Shalom, Middletown. Have you ever noticed that in the Torah, the Hebrew names that are familiar to us for the months are not mentioned? For that matter, most of the time, only numbers are used. Passover is celebrated on the 15th day of the first month. You know, uh, Rosh Hashanah, as we call it. Yom Truah, the day of shouting or blasting, is in Shofar, is observed on the first day of the seventh month, and so on. The actual naming of the months came about during the Babylonian time period, approximately 626 to 539 BCE. Therefore, it is not surprising that the month following Tishri has two and a half different names, Mar-Cheshvan, Cheshvan, and Bul. The prefix Mar can be translated to mean bitter, so since no one wants a bitter month, it is frequently removed, and the month is simply referred to as Cheshvan. Mar can also be interpreted as drop, as in a drop of water, which is appropriate because the prayers for rain begin annually during this month, after those who went to Jerusalem for Sukkot are assumed to be safely home. Similarly, the name Bull may be a shortened name stemming from the longer word Mabul, which means flood. The belief is that the flood, as in Noah and the Ark, both began and ended in this month. It was the first explanation above the idea of the bitter month that I was taught as a child. This month has no holidays or special, special meets vote commandments associated with it. Following a month that is overwhelming with events, a roller coaster of emotions, and a great deal of food, it can feel anticlimactic to have a bare month. But perhaps it is necessary to reestablish routine. As I have grown older, I have come to appreciate the downtime, the time off, a month to reorganize and refocus, especially so early in the year. It gives us the opportunity to plan and to review our plans, to make changes as necessary, and to reflect on where we want to go and how we intend to get there. What do we want to do during this new year? Rabbi Ari Goldwag of Ramat Beit Shemesh, Israel, explains in an essay at H.com, the message of Cheshvan is that despite the darkness, and even because of the darkness, there is future growth that awaits us. We have the opportunity to nurture that right at this moment. It is now that we gather the seeds from the holidays of the month of Tishri, plant them, and carefully water them through the winter months. With God's help, we will soon marvel at the beautiful spring bounty that we merit to cultivate. But this past year, thanks to COVID 
has been different. So how we begin 5782 will need to be different. We've been given this wonderful opportunity to reflect on the lessons which have been presented to us over Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and even Sukkot. Perhaps as we return to routine, we can do so with some new insights. But what is routine these days? We are still far from what we remember as normal, and we don't know when or even if that will happen again. For that matter, this constant not knowing what is the best way to create a new routine is frustrating and causes other issues and more stress for everyone. As Rabbi of Temple Beth Shalom in Middletown, I have found it necessary to look at the big picture. I am available for my congregation and my community, but decisions were made this past High Holy Days season, and these decisions were not easy. It was a last-minute choice, for example, to keep the services in the building but to require masks. The members of Temple Beth Shalom agreed on these safety precautions. I realize that not everyone sees things the same. Last year, according to some, just when the community connection of the synagogue was needed most, some congregations were forced to close people out, both figuratively and literally. Perhaps that was a mistake, but it is usually better to err on the side of caution. This pandemic is not normal, and we are all still learning how to react and how to respond. What we need now is to learn to be patient with others and try to listen and understand other viewpoints. How we interact with each other must change, as we are all adjusting to the strange world around us. If we have learned anything from this Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I would hope that we have learned to apologize and to forgive, not because of something we have done or was done to us that was necessarily wrong, but because of how we made others feel. Did we really listen to others? Did we accept that maybe there is more than one right way to feel? As the quote above from Rabbi Goldwag alludes, how we handle ourselves during these empty and difficult times are the seeds which will determine what is grown in the future. If we can learn to work together, united to make this world a better place, then the future will be full of forgiveness and understanding. There are those who believe that when the time eventually comes, the third temple in Jerusalem will be completed and celebrated during the month of Heshvan. Rather than a bitter month, think of Heshvan as a month full of hope, potential, and possibilities. As a friend recently posted on Facebook, maybe it's not about deciding who needs extra kindness, but knowing everyone does. May 5782, the year 5782, be filled with patience, understanding, and acceptance. And next, from the Arts and Culture section of The Observer, how NFL sports writer came to recount Survivor's story by Alan Zeitlin, JTA. As NFL beat writers go, Jory Epstein is likely among the more unique. Start with being a woman. She doesn't work on Shabbat, and she has penned a Holocaust survivor's biography. The Dallas resident who attended Jewish day schools and camps is only 26, too. Epstein covers the Dallas Cowboys for USA Today. Her debut book, The Upstander, How Surviving the Holocaust Sparked Max Glaubin's Mission to Dismantle Hate, Post Hill Press. About a fellow congregant at her Dallas synagogue was published earlier this year. 
Epstein will talk about the book via Zoom October 26th as part of the Dayton JCC's Cultural Arts and Book Series. She launched her sports journalism career with an internship at Sports Illustrated in New York while a student at the University of Texas. Epstein landed on the NFL beat when an editor at the Dallas Morning News where she worked as a digital sports producer, understood her religious needs and gave her Saturdays off. New sports writers often cover high school or college football, which would require work on the Sabbath as games typically take place on Friday night or Saturday. The NFL was a more practical option for her since the games are mostly on Sundays. Epstein acknowledges that she needed to bone up on football rules and prove to be a quick study. Covering the Cowboys hasn't been a problem for her as a female reporter. I'm so blessed to work with management, coaches, and players who respect me as a woman, she said. There will always be challenges for women in a male-dominated industry. I don't think that this is unique to sports. Epstein said the Cowboys owner, Jerry Jones, is great. He looks you in the eye and is very sincere. The whole team is very respectful, she said. The players have shown interest in her being Jewish and in the book. Wide receiver Amari Cooper asked her about Hebrew, she recalled. The book took her about five years to write and was mostly concluded before the COVID outbreak, although she did some follow-up interviews in person with masks and socially distanced. Some were on the phone or on Zoom. At 17, Epstein had heard Glauben, now 93, speak on a March of the Living trip in Poland nearly a decade ago. Both had attended Congregation Sheriff Israel, where she occasionally was the Torah reader, and he was at the Bima, the stage for blessing next to her. On the trip, Epstein had taken notes on Glauben's address to his teen audience, details in some cases that he had never disclosed. The book idea would stem from those notes, but it was only in 2016 when the two confirmed she would write the book. Why did Glauben, who was 15 when he survived Madonek and several other death camps, trust Epstein to write his history? It's a good question, said Epstein, who graduated from the Yavna Academy of Dallas. He could see I was sincere and cared. I think neither of us trusted each other 100% when, he first, when we first started, but as we got to know each other better, we built a great trust. Epstein infuses the book with horror and humor, tears and laughter, while taking an inside look at her steely subject. Glaubman related details about a decapitated head that fell in his lap, and being taken to a room by a Nazi where others have said they were sexually assaulted. His parents and brothers and brother were killed. Despite these atrocities, Epstein and Glauben tries to let go of the hate and aims to educate. He has spoken at many colleges and other schools about his experiences. His audiences are mostly non-Jews. He can't change that the Holocaust took place, but this is a way of creating purpose out of the past by teaching his story to other generations, Epstein said. I think the first March of the Living empowered him as he saw he could take the worst chapter of his life and use it for good by educating people. The book doesn't end with his liberation. Glauben went on to marry a woman named Frida, who liked the way he danced. He once taught the tango at a dance studio. He had a number of jobs, including owning a garment supply firm. Glauben is among a select group of survivors to take part in holographic technology that allows viewers at a Holocaust center in Dallas to ask him questions. A response is provided by one of his 1,146 pre-recorded answers. 
Epstein interviewed all seven of Glauben's children, uh, grandchildren for the book. They consider him a hero and wonder how he may have been different if not for his Holocaust experience. He's committed to being an inspiration and motivation, not just a commemoration, his granddaughter Sarah, 36, said in the book. And the JCC Cultural Arts and Book Series presents author Jory Epstein via Zoom, 7 p.m. Tuesday, October 26th. The program is free. Register at jewishdayton.org forward slash events or call 937-610-1555. And next from the Arts and Culture section, Battling the Memory Monster, a review of the book The Memory Monster by Yeshai Sarid, written by Ellis Schumann for the Times of Israel. Holocaust studies have been mandatory in Israeli high schools since the 1980s, and 11th graders are regularly taken on educational trips to the German extermination camps in Poland. According to the study, Shoah Education in Israeli State Schools 2007 to 2009, presented by Bar Ilan University, the journey to Poland is among the most important and effective aspects of Shoah education, highly valued by parents, teachers, and school principals. But what about the long-term effects of those journeys on those who guide the students through the camps? Are they able to bear the emotional burden of walking under the iconic Arbeit macht frei sign, the sign that in German reads work make you free at Auschwitz's gate time and time again? The subject of Holocaust education from the viewpoint of concentration camp tour guides is at the center of The Memory Monster by Yeshai Sarid, translated by Yarden Greenspan and published by Restless Books. The short but powerful novel raises the question of how far we let the horrors of the past infiltrate our present-day lives. The book's narrative is presented as a report by a nameless historian to the chairman of Yad Vashem, the official representative of Holocaust memory in Israel. The report details the historian's career, how he at first considered Holocaust studies a burden and thought himself immune to the emotional stress. The historian prepared his Ph.D. dissertation on the process of the Nazis' extermination techniques, a topic covering the details of mass murder, gas chambers, and crematoria, while supporting himself and his family by guiding high school students in Poland. It's hard to squeeze out a tear from the next generation, the historian states in the report, despite their marching through the camps wrapped in the Israeli flag, singing the national anthem. They cry momentarily, he notes, but he also wonders how deep the memory of what happened to the Jewish people has sunk into their bones. Retelling the horrors of the Holocaust in an endless loop takes an enormous toll on the historian, and he struggles to transfer memories of what happened to the youths he guides. In describing his work to his young son, he says he is battling a monster, a memory monster, and only by the book's end will we learn whether he manages to survive that battle. The Memory Monster is not an easy book to read, but its message is important to hear. The story of the Holocaust must be told, the memories must be kept alive, and we must find ways to handle those memories without losing our grip on reality. The JCC Cultural Arts and Book Series presents Yeshai Sarid via Zoom from Israel, 12.30 p.m., Wednesday, October 20th. It's free. Register at jewishdayton.org forward slash events 
or call 937-610-1555. And next from the art section, a parent-friendly parenting guide, a review by Rachel Teichman of tcjewfolk.com. What was my favorite part of the book Parenting with Sanity and Joy by Susan G. Groner? The bookmark. Probably not what you expected, but by including a bookmark and a beautiful blue fabric one at that. The author and the publisher, the Collective Book Studio, have acknowledged that a parent will be reading this book. Parents don't always have time to read a book cover to cover in one sitting. Even a book like this with one anecdote per page can't be guaranteed to be read without a child stopping by to ask for something. Just knowing that the bookmark is there and has your back really was meaningful. Parenting with Sanity and Joy is also an easy read and one that you can stop and start at any time. You could plan to read one or two pages a day for inspiration or open to a random page each day. It is full of tips and ideas for raising kids in an inspirational way. Many times you'll nod your head in agreement, proud that you already employ the mentioned techniques. Sometimes you'll bookmark new ideas in your mind. This is a great book to read right now as so many of us spend more or even all of our time with our families. It would also make a good gift for any parent-to-be, highlighting some issues and celebrations they have in store. The ideas that struck me the most are related to daily memory making and what makes memories of their childhood as a whole my children will have. It is also partly a workbook to record family wishes and ideas. Though not explicitly a Jewish book, Jewish ideals run throughout the pages from the ideas of giving back as a family, respecting parents and children, and raising a good person. This book can definitely be seen in a Jewish light. The JCC Cultural Arts and Book Series, partnering with PJ Library and JCC Early Childhood Care and Education presents Susan G. Groner via Zoom, 7 p.m. Tuesday, October 12th. The event is free. Register at jewishdayton.org forward slash events or call 937-610-1555. And next from the Jewish Family Education page of The Observer, in a word. The Power of Stories, a new series by Candice R. Quietek. During high school, my husband lived for a short while with an Israeli family in Rehovot. The patriarch, Aharon Krummer, was the son of a rabbi and thus had a story for every occasion. A frequent Talmudic favorite was just two sentences. Rabbi Meyer found a pomegranate. He ate the insides and threw away the peel. Aharon would invariably add, get the point? Stories can awaken memories, trigger ideas, and arouse emotions. They effectively and efficiently convey everything from information and complex ideas to culture and values. They are a powerful tool for teaching, influencing, and inspiring. Words and stories like words and speech have immense power. The biblical story of creation itself asserts the power of words. Unlike the cosmologies of other ancient civilizations, in Genesis, God speaks the word into being. God speaks the world into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Is human speech similarly powerful? The answer may be found in the Targum, written 
Aramaic translation of the Bible that reflects Midrashic interpretations, which describes God breathing into Adam the breath of a breaking of a speaking spirit. In other words, as Rabbi Eliyahu Safran explains in his essay, The Art of Speech, speech is that which epitomizes the divine gift inherent in each of us. It is also the one remnant from Eden that retains eternal life. Our words and the power of our speech live forever. In the next three stories, Jewish tradition explores the power of words and how we are to use our divine gift of speech. A folktale from the old country tells of a man with a habit of running, of telling tales and passing along rumors about other people. One day the man's neighbor approached the town rabbi in great distress, having heard a story being passed about him that was threatening his business and ruining his good name and reputation. Approached privately by the rabbi, the tale-bearer at first protested, saying he meant no harm, it was just a little tale, and after all it was true. But when he heard about his neighbor's distress, he wanted to make amends. The rabbi deliberated, then told the man to bring a feather pillow to the top of the town clock tower. When he arrived, the rabbi instructed him to cut open the pillow and shake out the feathers. After the wind carried them all over the town, the rabbi ordered the man to collect every one. The man gasped. That's impossible. The rabbi agreed. That's the way it is with rumors, stories, and secrets. Once they leave your mouth, you can never call them back. The Talmudic narrative relates that certain hooligans in Rabbi Meyer's neighborhood caused him a great deal of anguish. So he prayed for God to have mercy on him that they should die. Rabbi Meyer's wife, Ruria, said to him, What makes you think such a prayer is permitted? It is because the verse states, Let sins cease from the lad, which you interpret to mean the world would be better if the wicked were destroyed. But, she continued, Is it written, Let sinners, Chotim, cease? It is written, Let sins, Chataim, cease. One should pray for an end to their transgressions, not for the demise of the transgressors themselves. Furthermore, the end of the verse continues, and let the wicked be no more. Since the sins will cease, there will be no more wicked men. Rather, she concluded, pray for them, that they should repent, and there will be no more wicked people. Rabbi Meyer saw that Beruria was correct and prayed for them and they repented. Words can be powerful enough to really align our moral compass. The late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs retold a story he heard about a shaliach, an emissary, who upon arriving in a little town in Alaska, asked at the town hall about the Jewish community. Learning there were no Jews there, the shaliach asked if he could give a talk to the children at the local school. Permission granted, he visited a classroom where he asked, Have any of you ever met a Jew? One little girl raised her hand. Yes, my mother. Stunned, the shaliach thought to himself, What do I say to this girl? She's the only Jewish child in this school. These are the only Jews in the entire town, and they're unlikely to leave. What can I say to this girl now that will lead her to stay Jewish? And this is what he did asked her to light Shabbat candles every Friday eve and he, then he told her this story I 
don't know if you know this, but Alaska is the most westerly place in the world where there are Jews. It is the last place in the world where Shabbat comes. And when every Jew lights Shabbat candles, they bring light and peace to the world. So every Shabbat, the whole world is waiting for your Shabbat candles, the last of all to be lit. Words can inspire. That little girl had a task to perform for the whole Jewish people, for the whole world. That is how word, words can change lives. The Baal Shem Tov taught that every person is allotted a certain number of words for their lifetime. Once they are spoken, we depart from the world. The next time you are about to utter a word, Rabbi Rami Shapiro cautions, ask yourself whether this word is worth dying for. And literature to share as suggested by Candice Quiatek, The Memory Monster by Yeshai Sarid, translated from the Hebrew. The unnamed narrator of this controversial novel is a promising young Israeli historian and favored guide for the Holocaust remembrance trips to Poland. Fixated on the details of life and death in the camps, he struggles to connect with students distracted by their iPhones, with dignitaries and tourists encumbered by time and exhaustion, and a filmmaker whose agenda is unsettling and obscure. Written as a report to the chairman of Yad Vashem, the memory monster powerfully recounts the narrator's frustration and inner turmoil as his job becomes an obsession and he begins questioning the messages we're really giving in our attempts to memorialize the past. Be prepared to read this short but unforgettable novel in one sitting. And The Mysterious Mr. Mensch, Three Unforgettable Lessons in Ethics by David Slater. Reminiscent of the ever-popular Magic School, Magic School Bus series, this trio of tales pairs whimsical adventures with ethics and Jewish history. The easy-to-read chapters are perfect for young readers filled with friendly characters and memorable lessons about treatment of strangers, tzedakah, and repairing the world. A novel approach to learning ethics, this clever series is delightful fun for primary grades. And next, the obituary section of The Observer. Martin Howard Bierman, age 68, was a much-beloved father, husband, son, brother, friend, and physician, caring for many patients over his long career exclusively in the greater Sandusky area. His life was tragically cut short on August 20th while flying his plane, which he loved to do. Dr. Bierman was the first child and soon-to-be big brother. Born in Camden, New Jersey and living briefly in California before arriving in Dayton to become a lifelong Buckeye. He attended Cornell Heights grade school and briefly Fairview High School, then Meadowdale High School. Pre-med followed at Miami of Ohio University and medical school at The Ohio State University. He interned at Yale New Haven Hospital, then returned to OSU for residency in internal medicine and fellowship in gastroenterology. After completing his medical education, he moved to Sandusky to join a practice in gastroenterology and never left. He was an avid fitness buff, running almost every morning before doing procedures and seeing patients. He also loved being on the water in Sandusky Bay and the pond for water skiing, barefoot and otherwise, windsurfing, kiteboarding, swimming, cycling, and anything that would get him moving in the wind and water. 
Wintertime brought many years of alpine skiing, then he never looked back after being converted to a full-time snowboarder by his little brother. Dr. Bierman was also a true foodie and gourmet cook and could always be found puttering around in the kitchen with exotic entrees, his famous Caesar salad, his delicious desserts. He loved to travel and trying new restaurants, but most of all, he enjoyed spending time with his family. He is survived by his wife, Carlin Bierman, daughters Brooke Dernwald and Katie Campbell, son Trevor Dernwald, mother Joyce Carden, brother David Bierman, and sisters Nancy Tashman and Beth Pomerantz. And also by Parker, his faithful furry companion who was always curled up in his office. He was preceded in death by Stanford Bierman and Charles M. Carden. Interment was at Riverview Cemetery, Dayton. Memorial contributions may be made to Erie County Humane Society, 1911 Superior Street, Sandusky, Ohio, 44870, or back to the wild, 4504 Bardshar Road, Castalia, Ohio, 44824. It is with broken hearts and immense sorrow that we announce the passing of Theodore S. Jarvis, DDS. He passed peacefully surrounded by his loving family in Scottsdale, Arizona, which became his second home. Dr. Jarvis grew up in East Liverpool, Ohio as the only child of Elizabeth and Ray Jarvis, and he was the joy of their lives. He attended Ohio Northern University and then the Ohio State University College of Dentistry. It was there that he met his wife, Linda, and they have been together ever since. He served as a captain in the Army and then spent two years in Fort Benning, Georgia, before settling in Linda's hometown of Dayton, Ohio. Dr. Jarvis opened his dental practice with Linda as the office manager in 1974, and he treated patients with kindness and excellence until his retirement in 2011. They had two children, Stephanie and Daniel, and provided them with a lifetime of happiness and great memories. Dr. and Mrs. Jarvis became snowbirds after retirement, escaping Midwest winters for the sunshine and warmth of Arizona. Dr. Jarvis enjoyed reading, good television, travel, road trips, cars, and the occasional glass of McCollum, but most of all he enjoyed being with his family. He is survived by his wonderful wife of 51 years, Linda, his daughter, Stephanie, his son, Daniel, and Daniel's fiance, Liz. He is also surrounded by his brother, he is survived by his brother-in-law, Leonard Gerson, and his girlfriend, Carol Kelly, his sister-in-law, Sylvia Gerson, and her children, Lisa and Sam, his sister-in-law, Nancy Gerson, and her children, David and Deborah. He is preceded in death by his parents, William Raymond and Elizabeth Jarvis, his brothers-in-law Bob and Don Gerson, and Bagel the Beagle, who was the best dog in the world. No husband and father was ever more loved, and no husband and father ever loved his wife and children more. The world was a brighter and better place with him in it. The family asks that donations be made in Dr. Jarvis's name to Sixa of Dayton, email address is sixa.org forward slash give.
Linda Jarvis's address is 7860 East Camelback Road, number 204, Scottsdale, Arizona, 85251. Two days after cycling his favorite bike path, Glenn Picugno of Kettering died August 21st at the too young age of 61. Decency and compassion were his lodestars. Feeding the hungry with his limited income was his passion. He marched for justice, had a wild and zany sense of humor, danced an even wilder unique jig, and was a loyal and fun-loving friend. Mr. Picugno loved movies, sci-fi, baking, pizza, gardening, and above all, his family and dear friends. He sometimes, his sometimes tempestuous, tempestuous spirit was more than balanced by the most tender and nurturing of souls, and one could hardly ask for a more devoted son and sibling. He took his mother, Edie, on walks to boost her stamina, volunteered eagerly when help was needed, grilled burgers for family and friends even though he was a vegetarian and possibly ate more toast than any human in history. He painted, wrote poetry, quoted Butch and Sundance, listened patiently to your troubles, made you laugh, and was often the first to cry when raising a glass to his family at the table to the memory of those who had passed. Mr. Picognot has tremendous nobility of, had tremendous nobility of character gave endlessly of himself. He leaves us with an ache that will never be totally eased, only soothed by the comforting embraces and remembrances of all who loved him so dearly. Mr. Picklegnot was predeceased by his grandparents, Louis and Pearl Wollen, and Leonard and Marie Picklegnot, his father, James Leonard Picklegnot, his dear cousin and best friend, Ivan Karp, several aunts, uncles, and cousins. He is survived by his mother, Edie Picklegnot, his brothers, Steve Picklegnot and Don Picklegnot, his sister, Janelle Picklegnot, son, Jonathan Picklegnot, niece, Isabel, and five grandchildren, Eli, Judah, Zach, Naomi, and Lydia. His sisters-in-law, Lynn Herzog and Livia Trevino, and his daughter-in-law, Trisha Picklegnot, Interment was at Beth Abraham Cemetery. The family suggests donations in Mr. Pickwignot's memory to House of Bread Dayton or a local food bank. And now we'll go over to some stories coming through Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The first 22% of adult Jewish gamers faced anti-Semitic harassment while playing survey finds by Ben Sales. More than one in five Jewish adults who play online multiplayer games faced anti-Semitism while playing, according to a new survey from the Anti-Defamation League. The survey, published Wednesday, found that harassment and bigotry are common across the 97 million Americans who play multiplayer games. Among adult gamers surveyed, 83% said they had been harassed while playing. 60% of gamers ages 13 to 17 who were surveyed said the same. Among adults, nearly half of women said they were harassed, as did 42% of black gamers and more than one in three Asian and LGBTQ gamers. A quarter of Muslim gamers also said they were harassed. More than 7 in 10 adults reported what the ADL calls severe abuse, including physical threats, stalking, and sustained harassment. Among teens, 
Black, female, and Asian gamers also reported the highest rates of harassment in their age group, though harassment is less common across the board among teens. Only 7% of Jewish teen gamers said they were harassed for their identity, but 10% of teen gamers and 8% of adult gamers said they've been exposed to white supremacist extremism online. Among teens, 17% said they didn't feel like talking to family or friends after being harassed, and 10% said they did worse in school because they were harassed. Among both teens and adults, two-thirds said they sometimes or always hide their identity as a result of being targeted by hate. The survey was conducted in June in a collaboration with NowZoo, a gaming and esports analytics firm. It includes 1,664 adult respondents and 542 teen respondents. Depending on the group, it has a margin of error of between 2 to 3 percent. Ohio man sentenced to 20 years for planned attack on Toledo Synagogue by Ron Campeas. A federal court sentenced an Ohio man to 20 years in prison for planning deadly attacks on a Toledo synagogue. Damon Joseph of Holland, a Toledo suburb, had pleaded guilty in May to providing material support to a terrorist organization and attempting to commit a hate crime. Along with the prison term, the U.S. District Court in Toledo sentenced Joseph on May to a lifetime of supervised release. Joseph was 21 in 2018 when he posted recruitment propaganda for the Islamic State terrorist group on social media. FBI agents engaged him online, and Joseph said he wanted to carry out a mass killing attack on a Toledo Jewish target, inspired in part by the mass murder of Jews at a Pittsburgh synagogue in October that year. The attack on the Tree of Life synagogue was the worst on U.S. Jews in history. Joseph was arrested when he accepted two disabled assault rifles from an undercover FBI agent. In statements, prosecutors noted that Joseph planned his attack for Shabbat. He hoped to cause mass casualties by selecting a time when numerous innocent victims would be present. Acting Assistant Attorney General Mark Lestko of the Justice Department's National Security Division said. In court Monday, Joseph said he was naive and ignorant of religion. The cantor at the targeted synagogue, uh, Congregation B'nai Israel cited the timing of the sentencing. How appropriate that he has been sentenced as we commemorate the world's worst act of terror, 9-11. Ivor Lichterman was quoted as saying by the CBS uh, affiliate WTO. Similarly, this is around the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, the time when Jews seek atonement not only from God, but equally important from our fellow man local Jewish Federation thanked authorities for preventing an attack. We are grateful to the court, to the FBI, local law enforcement, and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Ohio for their careful attention and diligence in bringing Mr. Joseph to justice and for protecting our community, the Federation said in a statement. Synagogue Threat, Cemetery Vandalism, Shake Twin Cities Jewish Community by Lonnie Goldsmith and Lev Gringaus. And this is tcjewfolk.com. A suburban Minneapolis synagogue closed in the early hours of Friday morning after, after receiving what its managing director deemed a specific threat of violence about one day after 32 headstones were knocked down 
at a nearby Jewish cemetery. Although local officials do not believe at this time that the two incidents were related, their timing and close proximity had prompt, has prompted worry among Jews in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area during the high holidays. People are certainly asking about the situation and talking about it in the community, said Stephen Hunnigs, the executive director of the Jewish Community Relations Council of Minnesota and the Dakotas. Hunnigs described the overall mood as resolute, vigilant, concerned, but ultimately calm. Bethel Synagogue in the St. Louis, Louis Park made the decision to close Friday and move Shabbat services online after the regional offices of ADL Midwest in Chicago notified the congregation of the violent threat it received via its online incidents report system. The threat was directed at an unspecified Bethel Synagogue but referenced St. Louis Park by name and seemed to originate from the area. Meanwhile, St. Paul Police and the FBI are investigating the cemetery vandalism overnight Wednesday at Chesed Shai Ms Cemetery in St. Paul. There are no suspects. All the headstones were restored to their proper position by Friday afternoon. This is a beautiful cemetery. It's close to my home, Chesed Shai Ms Chairman Ken Otto said. You put your heart and your soul into it. You see that somebody just does stupid stuff like this. These people didn't do anything to nobody. They didn't do nothing to nobody. They're dead. Bethel reopened Monday morning for all activities. Leaders of the conservative synagogue indicated that they intend to hold in-person Yom Kippur services as planned. While the investigation of last week's threat remains active and ongoing, the time frame of the threat has passed. Matt Walter, the synagogue's managing director, wrote to congregants in an email last Sunday afternoon. In coordination with local authorities, we are proceeding with this decision and have secured additional law enforcement presence to ensure the safety of our synagogue community and preschool families. Other area synagogues and Jewish organizations, including the Minnesota JCC, expressed solidarity with Bethel, with some also indicating that they would be increasing security at their institutions in light of the threat. ADL Midwest, the JCRC, and the Secure Community Network said they were in contact with local and federal law enforcement regarding the synagogue threat and the cemetery vandalism. Specific details of the threat are not being released, with authorities citing an ongoing investigation. At a news conference last Friday, St. Louis Park Mayor Jake Spano lauded the close connection between Bethel and law enforcement. The big takeaway for me right now is the confidence that our police department and the Jewish community in St. Louis Park have developed over the years, a tight, tight relationship and coordination around these sorts of threats, Spano said. As tragic as this may be, the threat will not diminish the Jewish community. At the cemetery, Otto suspected the perpetrators were kids with nothing better to do and expressed doubt they would be caught. It's just very disheartening for it to happen, Otto said. I hear about it happening. You see it, but it never happens to you. Well, it finally happened to me. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.